You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. I wouldn't underestimate President Xi's determination to assert China's control. We will remain focused on the most serious long-term challenge to the international order. It is the U.S. that is threatening peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Lethality matters most. Maneuver puts capabilities to advantage. So we can kill Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from DC's top names. When you look at Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Florida, I mean, you've got a lot of competition for Donald Trump. There is a lot of excitement around Ron DeSantis, and he did perform very well in the state of Florida. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. An Air Force general sees a war with China in just two years as the Biden administration today says it considers cutting off Huawei from all American suppliers. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. As the general's internal memo tells officers to start preparing, we talk with Matthew Kranig of the Scowcroft Center at the Atlantic Council. Speaker Kevin McCarthy says Social Security and Medicare are off the table in debt ceiling talks. Does that create a path for President Biden ahead of their meeting on Wednesday? And later, the killing of Tyree Nichols rekindles the conversation of police reform at the federal level. We'll be joined later by Congresswoman Gwen Moore, Democrat from Wisconsin. With analysis from our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the hour. U.S. Air Force General Mike Minahan says, get ready. The head of Air Mobility Command writes in an internal memo to his officers, was obtained by NBC News that the U.S. and China are at risk of going to war in two years. You can read about it on the terminal. The general says he hopes he's wrong, uh, but he has a gut feeling that the fight will happen in 2025 when the presidential elections in the U.S. and Taiwan give China the opportunity to make its move against Taiwan. Now, the general is known for his motivational speeches, uh, certainly listen to his uh, part of his keynote here to the mobility airmen attending the airlift tanker association conference in denver colorado this is in october of last year we are the maneuver nobody else can do it too much water too much distance maneuver puts capabilities to advantage so we can kill at scale at tempo Wow. You should see the whole thing. He is striding back and forth on the stage, seemingly ad-libbing the speech, remembering what we heard from William Burns, 
course, the head of the CIA, about President Xi's intentions when it comes to Taiwan. Remember back. Listen. I wouldn't underestimate, um, you know, President Xi's determination uh, to assert uh, China's control, the People's Republic of China's control over Taiwan. That was in August. As we now find the headline from the terminal again, and this is an interesting and important scoop here that the Biden administration is now considering fully cutting off Huawei from American suppliers. Is this still a Cold War and could it turn into a hot one in just two years time, as the general is suggesting? Something we wanted to talk about with Matthew Kranick, deputy director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. He served in the Department of Defense and the intelligence community in the Bush, Obama and Trump administrations. He also advised the presidential campaigns of Mitt Romney and Marco Rubio. Today, he gets to advise you. Matthew, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks. It's always great to be back. Well, it's not every day a four-star general predicts war in China. Uh, Before I ask you how or why this leaked, do you believe the general is correct? Well, we don't know. Uh, We do know that the CIA has said that she has asked to have the ability to invade Taiwan by 2027. Uh, So that's become known as the the Davidson uh, window. Uh, But it could be sooner. And I think the general was was trying to motivate his troops. We might have to fight tonight. And I think he was trying to get them ready. If General Minahan knows the U.S. could be distracted by the elections in 2024, certainly the Pentagon, the State Department also know this. What preparations could they be making to prevent a war right now? Well, I think this is the top priority of the Pentagon. They're very worried about a Chinese attack on Taiwan. Uh, They're uh, doing war games, building weapons for this um, scenario. So I I think there is a lot of uh, focus on it. And I think uh, the uh, comments this weekend were consistent with that, Uh, just uh, trying to boost the morale of uh, young troops, letting them know this is serious and, and they need to be ready. General Mike Minahan is not the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and not a spokesman for the Pentagon. Uh, it's not often, you know, we hear a leak from the head of Air Mobility Command, as we are in this case. But there's some doozy lines in here. Uh, my gut tells me we'll fight in 2025, telling officers to fire a clip at a target and aim for the head. Was this made for leaking? I, I don't think so. I, I think um, it was really intended for an internal audience. Uh, you know, again, trying to uh, motivate uh, young troops. Uh, you know, this is clearly not something that would have come out of the uh, Pentagon spokesperson's no. um, office. We know that Speaker Kevin McCarthy, at least he said this before he won the gavel, that, that one of the first things he would do, you might remember around the time Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, is that he, if he became Speaker, would bring a bipartisan delegation to Taiwan. Is that something you see here? Because Beijing is now officially urging him not to travel to the island. Does that mean we relive this entire Pelosi episode? We may go through it um, again. And, uh, you know, I I think it would be a mistake for us to, um, for our senior officials to travel based on where the Chinese Communist Party tells them uh, they can and can't uh, go. Um, uh, So it would be a mistake to back down. Uh, from that, but I think China will um, uh, will not uh, appreciate the visit. So I think it could be another another crisis. We've sent billions of dollars in weapons to Ukraine, of course, and there's now a debate over what else we may send, whether there's going to be money for that. But it's increasing calls for restocking our own arsenal, Matthew. What do we need to best prepare for a conflict with China? 
Well, uh, Michelle Flournoy, Obama's undersecretary of defense for policy, put it well. Uh, she said, essentially, what we need is the ability to sink the Chinese Navy in 72 hours. Wow. Because in order to invade uh, Taiwan, China would have to bring over large numbers of forces on ships. Uh, and so if we can threaten to sink those ships, uh, we should be able to deter China from going in the first place. So more submarines, more anti-ship missiles. Um, capabilities like that that would make it difficult for China to project power across the Taiwan Strait. Does the act of restocking uh, become a deterrent in itself? Yeah, I think having the the credible uh, strategy and having the capabilities is uh, all part of it. And so, yes, if China sees that we're um, buying the the weapons that we would need, and and at some point it becomes an arithmetic game. How many ships do they have? How many munitions? Do we need to uh, hold those at risk? And if they see we uh, you know, have the ability to deny their invasion of Taiwan, then that would make it much less attractive for them to uh, try to do so. Boy. Matthew, we're having this conversation as Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits Israel and major headlines uh, overseas this morning as Iran says one of its ammunition depots was attacked in a drone strike. Uh, that appears to have uh, come from Israel. It's unclear uh, some of the details here, but as, as you talk to me today, what threat is the one that keeps you up at night, China or Iran? Well, they're both um, concerning. Uh, you know, there's been a bipartisan consensus that we're going to stop Iran from building nuclear weapons for 20 years or so now, and uh, time is running out. The best experts estimate that if Iran were to dash to a nuclear weapons capability, it could be there within a couple of weeks. Mm. So I think stopping Iran is important. But the, to answer your question, the bigger threat is no doubt China. Uh, Chinese invasion of Taiwan could mean World War III, a conflict with Iran also serious, but not, not on the same scale. Wouldn't Iran try to capitalize on that if we went to war with China? This could be global pretty quickly, no? That is a danger. And of course, there's Russia and Ukraine. Uh, North Korea is still a problem. And so simultaneous conflict is something that defense strategists in Washington are thinking uh, a lot more about. How could we, uh, you know, deter and, if necessary, defeat multiple adversaries at the same time? Well, we're not ready for that now, are we? No. In fact, Biden's um, defense strategy called for a a one-war so-called force planning construct, Mm -hmm. uh, basically said that we need to be prepared to fight one war. uh, And so that makes sense for budgetary and other reasons. But uh, you know, the enemy gets a vote. And so if we get into a conflict <laughs> with China over Taiwan, uh, I, you know, I don't think Putin or the Ayatollahs are just going to sit on their hands. So what do you make of this conversation uh, on Capitol Hill right now about making significant cuts to defense spending? This is all, of course, part of the debt ceiling debate that I, Matthew, I will not pull you into. But it sounds like that conversation, that debate could be dead on arrival, considering the trajectory of this story that we're talking about, global war. Yeah, and in fact, most um, I think there is actually a bipartisan consensus among defense experts that we need to increase defense spending. There was a bipartisan defense panel a couple of years ago that called for 3 to 5% real growth uh, every year for the foreseeable future uh, on top of inflation. And, and we're nowhere near that now with, with inflation. Uh, you know, the defense budget is barely, uh, barely holding steady. Mm-hmm. So I, I am worried about these political debates. Uh, and that they could harm our national security. And you're talking conventional weapons here. We're talking ships, tanks, airplanes, not cyber, which I find interesting. There's no way to get ahead of that, right, to prevent a conventional war by using cyber technology. Well, cyber has to be part of the equation, but it really complements uh, these other hard power 
tools, it, it doesn't really substitute for it. Yeah, you can't think 72 uh, or the Chinese Navy in 72 hours using uh, computers, unfortunately. You do need uh, missiles and uh, things that, that uh, you know, can sink ships. He's the deputy director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, and it sounds, Matthew, like we've got a lot more to talk about over the year ahead. Please come back and see us again. Thank you. Look forward to coming back. Matthew Kranig, starting things off for us on Bloomberg as we assembled our panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us now for their take on this. Uh, Rick, the headline is something, war in, in 2025. And as Matthew just quoted Michelle Flournoy, the U.S. would have to sink the Chinese Navy in 72 hours. We're not ready for this, are we? Well, whether we're ready or not, I think one of the other unspoken um, uh, aspects to this in your interview is they're trying to do the same thing to us. And they've got hypersonic missiles that can take out aircraft carriers. And so the, the weapons that we would use to take out their Navy in 72 hours, whether we have them or not right now, uh, uh, isn't isn't in a zero sum game that they are looking at the same thing, saying, "What do we have to do?" And of course, we have the tyranny at distance. They got to cross the, the Chinese Strait, and that's a lot of water. Yeah. We have to cross the entire Pacific Ocean and the Chinese Strait. So, um, you know, it's a it's a really complex problem for us to fight a war that far away from our own shore. And 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 any idea that we're going to somehow do that on the cheap or cut the defense budget while we're planning on a war with China in three years is sophomoric. So if we're talking about this, uh, Genie lawmakers are certainly having this conversation. Does it change the debate over the debt ceiling this year? You know, I'm not sure it does, except to the extent we probably don't see the cuts to defense. Um, And, you know, I think it's important to go back, you know, right when the Russian invasion of Ukraine was occurring, we had Anthony Blinken giving a major speech at George Washington where he said, you know, this this invasion is important, but the greatest threat we've face is China and vis-a-vis Taiwan. And so that has sort of remained and you see it throughout Washington. I mean, the reality is you want to get something done in Washington today, frame it as you know, confronting China and it brings everybody together. And we've seen that over and over again in the last couple of years. So, you know, I do think we are going to hear more and more about this. And what the general is saying is what's being spoken quietly. But he said it Mm -hmm. out loud and it got through on social media. But getting back to where we started, though, this does change the contours of debate over over defense spending. Right. When this starts becoming an open debate, the Pentagon's going to weigh in on this, along with a lot of other experts that that really could make that not as susceptible as folks seem to think it is right now. No, that's yeah. right. I mean, the, go ahead, Jenny. Oh, sorry. Rick. No, I was just going to totally agree and, yeah. and say, you know, now that you have, as you mentioned at the top, McCarthy taking certain things off the table, where does that leave us? I mean, you know, how do you then ensure that the deficit doesn't go up, the debt doesn't go up, the debt ceiling gets raised if you're not going to even consider any cuts to defense and mm-hmm. you're not going to consider those to the major social programs? Where does that leave you? The discretionary is not enough at this point. We're going to talk more about this whole thing in terms of the, the, the contours of the debt ceiling coming up a little bit later on this hour. With regard to China, uh, Rick, Kevin McCarthy promised he was going to make, make a bipartisan uh, delegation trip to Taiwan in, in one of the first things he would do as speaker. I don't know if he's going to get around to that. Uh, so it's one of the first things he does. But that does appear to be part of the plan. Is it a smart move? Uh, sure. He wants to follow in the footsteps of Nancy Pelosi's trip there last year. 
Um, it riled the Chinese quite a bit, but I think it did a lot for the standing of Taiwan in the world community uh, and certainly brandished what we consider our priority in the, in the region. Uh, my understanding is he's working with defense officials to plan a trip in the spring, and uh, he's certainly within his rights to do so, uh, regardless of the bellicose uh, messages coming from uh, the Chinese uh, government as early as today on mm-hmm. on how they would uh, oppose that trip. I would say, too, he, he's doing something very constructive by creating this this China Select Committee headed up by Mike Gallagher. You know, there have been talk about this for almost half a decade. Uh, we thought we were going to see that come to fruition in 2020, but the Democrats demurred at the last minute. Uh, but this is a way to unify Congress around the China threat. And the China threat is much more than just Taiwan. It's economic. It's social. Uh, it, it has a lot to do with other parts of the world, Latin America and and obviously Africa. Uh, and so uh, I think that they are the pacing threat to the United States today. And, 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 and I think right now starting to get the attention it deserves. Well, Rick is right about all of that, Jeannie. The economic side of this is huge. And news today that the Biden team is considering fully cutting off Huawei from U.S. suppliers gives us a sense of at least the direction of what this relationship is going and it's not getting any better. It is not. And, you know, I agree with Rick on the constructive aspect of the committee where I disagree is the same place I disagreed last year when Nancy Pelosi went there. You know, the question has always been, what are we getting out of these visits? You know, she went against the advice of most of the foreign policy community in D.C. and elsewhere. He will likely go. He is working with the Pentagon, as Rick said. But how does that achieve our objectives? And let's not forget the major military exercises that ensued after she went. It is a dangerous game. Yeah, they circled Taiwan within hours. I'll be very curious to see if this is a bipartisan trip, which Democrats go on the trip. Thanks to... Matthew Kranick and our panel, Rick and Jeannie, are back with more Straight Ahead on Sound On. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. 
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Republicans in the House say they want budget cuts in return for raising the debt ceiling. But Social Security and Medicare will apparently not be among them. Speaker Kevin McCarthy said as much on Sunday morning. This is on CBS, Face the Nation. Here he is. You're going to tell me inside defense there's no waste others? Um, I mean, so defense I, spending they is spend a lot of. I think everything, when you look at discretionary, is sitting there. It's like every single household. It's like every single state. We shouldn't just print more money. We should balance our budget. So mm-hmm. I want to look at every single department. Where can we become more efficient, more effective, and more accountable? So more that efficiencies in Social Security and Medicare as well. The one thing I want to take, we take Social Security Completely. and America okay. off the table. Off the table. Let's reassemble the panel. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are here. Bloomberg Politics contributors. This ahead, of course, Jeannie, ahead of his meeting with President Biden on Wednesday. What is the speaker telegraphing here? Yeah, I I mean, I think he's trying to take off an issue that would really come back politically to hurt Republicans. I mean, we heard Rick Scott uh, speak to this during the last election, and and he got it was the best thing that happened to the Democrats, and they were very excited to talk about it. Mitch McConnell ran away from it. He's trying to take it off the table. But I think the reality is, is we're going to have to hear then if these are off the table, what exactly is on the table? And, you know, this is where we haven't gotten the specifics from Republicans. We also haven't gotten specifics from Democrats as well. And, you know, as Kevin McCarthy keeps saying, they're going in to talk about the debt ceiling. The White House is very clear to say, no, they're not. It's not the only thing on the table. There's a lot of issues on the table. So it's going to be interesting to see how they sort of massage this. But again, you know, that reality is they're going to have to come together if they're going to address the issue of the debt. What are they planning on doing in terms of capping? Where is that going to go? I thought it was interesting that he chose to do the interview at all, Rick. I wonder what your thoughts are on that, to sit down on Sunday morning TV, knowing the meeting with Joe Biden would happen on Wednesday, and that in itself is a big optical win uh, for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Why the run-up in the media? He's been doing some other uh, conservative news channels as well, not that that's highly unusual. This is a little bit more unique for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Does this help him uh, look better when he walks in the door on Wednesday? What's behind it? No, I think the uh, Biden administration, the White House, has already given him a win on this by saying they refuse to negotiate. Uh, Mm. Just a really intolerable position with electorate, right, who are all out there saying, hey, we want to see you guys work together. I mean, if there was one message that came screaming across the ballot last last election was Mm. that they're tired of government not getting things done. So he's sitting there by uh, uh, McCarthy saying, wow, they've given me the bipartisan uh, 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 value of that issue. I'm out there saying I want to negotiate with him. And he says, no way, I'm not going to do it. Don't even want to talk about it. So he wants to be on every single TV show saying, I don't know why the president's being so unreasonable. Doesn't yeah. he want to, doesn't he want to make sure that we have full faith and, and, and credibility around our government spending? And don't we really do believe that government spends more money than it should? And, and so he's not going to offer any specifics until the day before a deal is done, because uh, the minute he gets into the specifics, he starts losing his base. He starts mm-hmm. losing people who are saying, "Wait a minute, we're not going to we're not going to cut the defense budget at a time when we're in competition with China like this, yeah, right. or a war with Russia, you know, in in the Ukraine." So, I mean, the minute he starts putting his finger on specifics, he starts to turn off voters. Will he come out of this meeting 
Jeannie stand at the stake out in the White House driveway and destroy the president? Or or might there actually be some progress that day? What is the point of, of these two guys sitting down? Is it getting to know you or actually getting something done? Well, the White House is saying they're discussing a range of issues. Yeah, you know, sure. I think it's far too early as much as I would like to say that they will come out and have moved it forward and have some progress. Uh, we're in February. We know in Washington things go right to the end. So I don't know. We're going to hear much progress <laughs> at that six point. six months to work with here. We got a long time to go. You know, I do think he is going to keep with this line. And I agree with Rick. That, you know, we want to negotiate. We're here mm-hmm. to negotiate. But again, I think the White House has to be very clear. We can negotiate on the budget going forward and what we're going to spend. What we can't negotiate on is paying the bills that we have due and that the Congress allocated and that we owe because that would destroy the economy of the United States and potentially impact the world economy. So I think the White House has to really message on that. We're willing to negotiate on spending and the budget going forward, but not on whether, in fact, we raise the debt ceiling. Well, Rick, the Democratic line last couple of days, last over the past week has become uh, show us your cards, right? Make make a, a proposal. Give us something to react to. And your point is there's no reason for Kevin McCarthy to do that. No, look, I mean, politically, there's no reason to do it. If he actually wants to get a deal, sure, then he's got to outline his specifics. But, you know, they ought to bring Jeannie in for a session with the White House staff because the point she's making is actually where they ought to be, which is, hey, wait a minute, Republicans in Congress. You said you were going to go through regular order. Hmm. There's supposed to be 12 appropriations bills that you do. That's how you cut spending. You're in total charge of this. You don't need us to negotiate. Go do your budget like you said you were going to do, and that's where you can cut the budget. So, like, there's actually a really offensive line that feeds right into what the Republicans were saying when they were electing Kevin McCarthy speaker. You know, you're the speaker. You've got in charge of the House process. You want to you want to do regular order. Go out and do those 12 appropriations bills and cut all you want. Let's see how far it goes. That's right. Get back to us at the end of the year, Jeannie. Otherwise, Kevin McCarthy is making the swamp even deeper. Right. You just want backroom deals around the debt ceiling. Maybe you should call the White House with this. Yeah, I will try. And, you know, the other interesting thing is Mitch McConnell is also trying to walk away from this. He does not want any part of this. He wants to stay far away. And he's basically saying what Rick just said, which is, you know, House, you have to start the appropriations process. You have to do this. Mm -hmm. You go ahead and do it. And when you're done, send it over and and we'll take a look. And you have Republicans in Congress, even those who aren't quite friendly with Mitch McConnell, saying, why don't you get more involved? But, of course, he doesn't see any benefit to the Republicans in the Senate getting involved so you know the onus really is on republicans in the house but of course for (laughs) mccarthy he wants to keep saying hey we're willing to be bipartisan negotiate all these kinds of things and to that extent he really can feel good and is why i think he was out this weekend on on the on the news channels because he can real feel really positive that listen i want to negotiate and i got this you know visit to the white house what are the optics of this meeting uh Rick, does President Biden serve uh, subs? You know, is this like uh, do we do we try to make this look like a more tortured affair or do they treat him like a king when he comes over? Well, uh, I would say, first off, uh, it's real elevation for Kevin McCarthy. I mean, here's a guy who yeah. became speaker on the 16th ballot, right? He could he could barely yes. get anybody to vote for him. And now he gets to go over to the White House as speaker and have a one on one with president of the United States. So the president is elevating him by virtue of the meeting. And I'm sure that's why they didn't want to meet with him to begin with. But mm-hmm. secondarily, I think that the White House has to be prepared in advance of the meeting to set the stage a little bit. I mean, like 
the point that Jeannie made is, oh, we got a whole raft of issues we're going to discuss. Well, what are they? I mean, like every other meeting that takes place in the White House, there's expectation setting. Mm-hmm. This one is seems to be scrambled eggs, right? One minute they're not going to meet with them. Next minute they say there are, but they're not going to talk about the most important issue in Congress, the debt ceiling. Why wouldn't you talk about the most important issue? I mean, it, it, to be honest with you, I keep scratching my head going, look, if, if there isn't something to meet with a guy on, don't meet with him. Wow. Yeah. Well, although then again, they'll have to be accountable, right? Then then Karine Jean-Pierre has to say what they discussed about the debt ceiling genie. Yeah, as vague as possible. It's just a lot of issues, Joe, that they want to talk about. I think maybe he brings George Santos. He brings those Dunkin' Donuts over with him and they have (laughs) themselves a good time over at the White House on Wednesday. Well, I mean, they'll 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 have a pool spray in the Oval Office, I presume. Right. If the speaker's coming over, there's no there's no obligation, though, Rick, for them to do that. Does the White House let the the media get a nibble at this before he comes out to the stakeout? And does Kevin McCarthy play it cool? Or does he have to say something critical about Joe Biden after that meeting? Yeah, I would say they've noticed the same thing you mentioned, Joe, and that is that, you know, Kevin McCarthy sort of taking him to the hoop on the media about being this bipartisan guy. Wait a minute. That's Uncle Joe's line. That's not Kevin McCarthy's (laughs) line. So so sure, I think they will do a spray and they'll talk about working together and. And, and that would certainly play into the Joe Biden narrative, uh, much more so than Kevin McCarthy. And, and so I can't imagine them ceding that narrative to Kevin. The, the, the second thing is, you know, does Kevin stay on that narrative as he walks out onto the North Portico right. and addresses the press for the meeting? And my guess is yes, because he's actually feeling his oats on this. And he can't really rely on the White House to, to circumvent it. And so why not? continue to press the button that, uh, hey, I'm actually trying to make Congress work. I'm trying to get the government to do the things that it's supposed to do. And so I think he takes the high ground and I think he continues to push the bipartisan measure. And by the way, so far, a lot of the things we're doing, we talked about the China Select Committee, which is bipartisan. Um, I think think there is an argument to be made that he's trying to really actually operate in the same way that his rhetoric is, 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 is mentioning. Remembering that'll be a week, less than a week before the State of the Union. So grand drama here in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. This is not the first time lawmakers in Washington have been called to act on police reform, certainly. But the killing of Tyree Nichols has brought another opportunity. Ben Crump, the Nichols family attorney in this case, again, talked about this on a number of shows on Sunday morning. This is CNN. Listen. Shame on us if we don't use his tragic death to finally get the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed. We told President Biden that when he talked to us because, uh, you know, he should marshal the United States Senate uh, with Senator Booker, Senator Schumer, and they should try to get the House to re-engage It was a point of conversation on every Sunday morning TV show. Uh, Hard to say any real solution embraced. You heard uh, Ben Crump there mention the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan made clear on Meet the Press he didn't see a federal solution at all. Listen. If we can incentivize certain things, I still think you want to keep this at the state and local level. This is a law enforcement issue. You start getting the federal government involved in databases and federalizing things, that gets, because the federal government screws it up so many times. We've had 
I think about. I think one of the one of the items in the Democrat legislation a couple of years ago was some kind of federal registry. Well, then you get concerns. Is it every complaint going to be there? Are they going to be just adjudicated complaints? How are we going to track this? And I know all kinds of federal databases that get it wrong. We've had members of Congress show up on the on the no fly list. Well, no one ever said it would be easy. And this is where we begin our conversation with Congresswoman Gwen Moore, Democrat of Wisconsin, who tweets. Our country needs the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act to increase accountability for law enforcement misconduct, enhance transparency, and prevent and remedy racial profiling by law enforcement at the federal, state, and local levels. Congresswoman, thank you for being here. Uh, You heard Jim Jordan there suggest that this needs to be a state or local issue. Why does it demand a federal one? Well, I think that there are protocols for police officers that run through all of the of the of policing and that's what the george floyd uh bill addresses it's really interesting because representative jordan brought up one aspect of the bill uh to try to raise fears around you know a database you know and the invasion of privacy Hmm. that's one provision one of many provisions in this bill and that is so that bad cops who violate people's civil rights, as was done with Tyree and with George Floyd. Don't just leave and move to the next uh, 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 department uh, in the next uh, state or county. Uh, So uh, he lifted that up without mentioning the really important parts uh, of this bill. Uh, You know, you know, training on racial bias and duty to intervene. One of the issues in this particular murder uh, the, the the ban on no-knock warrants in, in drug cases, you think in Breonna Taylor's case, ban on chokeholds and carotid holds. Uh, and also under that title are provisions that I put in regarding, you know, conditioning uh, certain police dollars, burn funds on de-escalation training and demanding that cops de-escalate the situation before uh, using force. Um, and it goes on and on regarding the mili- you know, militarizing our federal government, giving uh, uh, military-style equipment to local police departments, uh, and, and, and using body cam- cameras. Yep. Um, the, the parts that are very, very, very controversial, as you know, uh, uh, also uh, apply. And, you know, I, I think that that's the thing that's worth discussing here, and that is the immunity— Qualified immunity. Uh, that qualified immunity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how how that relates to the disincentive, I think, for people who are serving as police officers um, to, to, to follow the rules and regulations and laws. Because there are no consequences that can inure to them, uh, really. How do you re-engage the House uh, like Ben Crump says? Well, uh, I, I, I think... When we did pass this bill, we passed it uh, when the Democrats were in the majority. And I think that that is a reality uh, that is still uh, the case. Uh, And, you know, it really could you do it in this Republican majority, though? Well, you know what? There there ought to be an opportunity to do that, because, you know, when you start talking about a lot of crime, uh, a lot of this is occurring in so-called red states. Uh, and in places not governed by Democrats who are in charge. You would think that this would be something we'd be able to bring to their uh, attention. 
but uh, I, I am not sure that, uh, that that the votes are there. But it certainly would not discourage me from, from participating in trying to get the George Floyd bill uh, uh, passed. I mean, I had a provision, as I indicated, mm-hmm. that was very, very reasonable. Um, and to, to require officers to have de-escalation training. I mean, we found the police uh, 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 executive research forum found that, you know, only uh, uh, that a very small amount of departments used funding that they had for de-escalation training, whereas they spent lots of money on how to shoot and how to uh, be aggressive. And so this bill would would require, you know, that certain funding be conditioned uh, or incentivized, rather. There's the incentive. You can't really get the money unless you use some of the funding for de-escalation sure. training. Just to understand, though, and to be specific here, when it comes to qualified immunity and whether to allow families of victims of police violence sue police officers for damage damages in civil lawsuits, uh, are, are those those have been the, the stumbling blocks here? Do they have to be in any final bill? Is there a way to get to this uh, with some of the other issues that you mentioned? Or do you have to have qualified immunity in that bill? Well, uh, qualified immunity may be just sort of a, a stalking horse because there are other provisions that could be passed, uh, parts of it, uh, by themselves. We We haven't seen any. Uh, Republican co-sponsors to, for other sort of uh, common sense pieces of legislation. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, I am not the lead on this bill in the House, and uh, the, the the Democratic majority uh, in the Senate is one of the places that I would look for a lot of strong leadership. I think Senator Booker has led this initiative, and we have certainly uh, gun violence and, and uh uh, police, uh, you know, judiciary members, you know, who would be very willing to sponsor and champion this. And, of course, as a member of the Congressional Black Caucus yeah. and as a person who is a, you know, co-author of this bill, uh, I certainly would, would be willing to really get a vote. Let Republicans get on the record in terms of how they feel about uh, uh, about lacks policing uh, and government uh, regulation of, of, of folk who have tremendous power uh, over other citizens. And we think that they're reasonable, and uh, we'd like to get everybody on the record. The National Community Violence De-Escalation Training Act of 2021. We'll talk more about it. Gwen Moore, thank you for being with us. Congresswoman from Wisconsin, Democrat, as we reassemble our panel. I'd love to hear quickly from Rick and Jeannie on this. Uh, it, it's this is, this is becoming one of these debates in Washington where there's a big uproar. There's a, there's a thought uh, that, that there would be some movement here and then things don't get across the finish line. Uh, Jeannie, when you consider Gwen Moore in a, in a piece of legislation like this, de-escalation training, uh, not to mention the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, how to either get through this house. 
You know, I, I suppose there's a possibility the de-escalation could. It's hard to imagine the George Floyd getting through a Republican House at this point. I mean, the reality is it got through the House last time under the Democrats' control, and it got stalled in the Senate, and it was a bitter ending to that bill. And, you know, I do think it's important to step back and say, when it comes to the horrific incident in Memphis with Tyree Nichols, could legislation have addressed that at all any of these pieces of legislation i mean you're talking about a total lack of humanity on the part of these people who did this Mm -hmm. to him and the same thing is true with george floyd so that has to be put into context and that doesn't mean we shouldn't have a legislative solution because i really believe we should but i'm not convinced we're going to get there particularly given how divided closely divided the house is at this point Listen to Congressman Jim Comer uh, from earlier today, Rick, at the National Press Club. He was talking to our own uh, Emily Wilkins, uh, who was conducting this interview in front of an audience here. And she asked him about his committee or his colleagues acting on this in terms of uh, a bill uh, for uh, police reform or even the oversight committee looking into what happened. Here's what he said. I haven't even thought about it, to be honest with you. I mean, I I was asked about it. It's a terrible thing. Uh, Certainly. There are bad apples in, in every profession, bad politicians, bad police officers, uh, and they need to be held accountable. So I'm, I'm confident those police officers are going to be held accountable. Rick, every lawmaker uh, knows that they could be asked about this. Do they need a better answer than that? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe a little too honest of an answer yeah. <laughs> for a politician. Uh, you know, the idea that with everything that we've been through as a country over the last you know three or four years, uh, the idea that you haven't really thought about uh, uh, police malpractice, you know, and and the damage to the communities that have ensued um, is is a little naive. Um, the reality, though, is the only other thing that's as naive as that is the idea that there's consensus in Congress to pass a comprehensive bill like right. the George, George Floyd uh, Act. Uh, it, there's just not votes there. There are not votes in the House and there are not votes in the Senate. And so. I'm not sure, you know, uh, Congresswoman Moore makes a compelling argument as to why we need it. But the idea of just taking a vote to embarrass, um, you know, members of the opposite party mm. when there are members of our own party who don't support it um, is, is just not, I think, constructive to finding a bipartisan solution. I mean, myself, I think there are a limit to what you want the federal government to do because, um, you know, these police forces uh, really don't need the burden of another set of regulations from the federal government. Uh, but they need to obviously be reformed. I mean, there's no question uh, that uh, what we're seeing in the headlines on a too regular basis uh, uh, should be the reflection of of our police forces across the country. Never easy answers, but a conversation that we'll keep having uh, here on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano with us for some final thoughts next as Donald Trump makes his, could I say, return to the campaign trail if he wasn't actually on it to begin with? Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. 
And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So two stops in one day for Donald Trump. The high energy campaign is back Saturday in New Hampshire and then later in South Carolina making the case for the campaign. And he says, you know what? Nobody's even close. Listen. Remember, I used to in 2016, I talked about polls all the time. In 2020, I didn't have to because we didn't have a lot of competition. We had no competition. And I don't think we have competition this time either, to be honest. But I talked about the polls. And I will say that our polls, we are absolutely, we are so far ahead in the polls, uh, both in New Hampshire. One came out this morning, a very nice poll, we're way ahead. And one uh, came out yesterday, a nationwide poll, and we're 35 points up, 39 points up. That's a lot. Well, yeah, of course, if you were with us on Friday, you'd know that in the UNH poll in New Hampshire, uh, he's behind Ron DeSantis by 12 points. Did I mention Ron DeSantis? Yes. And Nikki Haley. We talked about both of them in a segment with our panel. And on the airplane home, he had some media with him. The reporters are asking him about what's going on here. And well, he had things to say about both of them. Listen, Nikki Haley called me the other day to talk to me. I talked to her for a little while. But I said, look, you know, go by your heart if you want to run. She's publicly said that I would never run against my president. He was a great president. Florida was actually closed for a very long period of time. Remember, he closed the beaches and everything else. I think they're trying to rewrite history, he says. They closed the beaches, COVID, DeSantis, another reference there. What's the panel think about this? Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Jeannie, I bet you're laughing right now, but the idea here uh, of, of Donald Trump blowing everybody out of the water on these polls, my goodness, we just went through the numbers a couple of days ago, and obviously that is not true. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I think that Jeb Bush has got to be enjoying this an enormous amount. The number of people <laughs> describing Donald Trump as low energy. low energy. So good for Jeb to have the last laugh. And, you know, in between talking about Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, he spent a lot of time on things like the woke military and, oh, also yeah. windmills. Um, there was right. a lot of talk about windmills. So it was quite a quite a weekend for him. Um, you know, he needs to really listen to sound on so he can get clear on these polls, because I think he is misstating. <laughs> them. He accused George Santos of sort of, you know, not always telling the truth, exaggerating. Well, mm-hmm. you know, they seem like two peas in a pod at this point. Does that actually mean that he's worried about both of them, Rick? Yeah, maybe the more he talks about you, the more he's afraid of you. Um, yeah. Certainly he doesn't want these people to catch on, right? Actually generate any momentum. So I'm, I'm not sure that's a bad thing in the sense that uh, the last thing you want is your likely opponents to have uh, some time to get started. I, I would say uh, uh, the one thing I caught that um, that I thought was pretty effective was starting to label 
uh, Governor DeSantis is a flip-flopper uh, because, I mean, without using the term, that's basically what he was saying is that, mm. you know, he's he's trying to get into these positions that I've been in for a long time and, you know, really straining his history to do it. So, I mean, some of these attacks aren't without their value. I would say, though, uh, it goes equally well. I mean, you know, Donald Trump likes to talk about the, uh, the support he's got in, in New Hampshire that certainly wasn't represented by the very small crowd that he had when he was there. But he's about to face, you know, a year of constant pummeling from a wildly popular Republican governor. That's right. uh, Chris Sununu. And uh, tell me how that feels after about six months. Um, Well, so having had lots of candidates who've been in that position, that can be a very painful experience. Oh, yeah. That's the question I guess I have then, Jeannie. Does he stay on the road for the next year? How many of these are we going to get? He sure doesn't want to. Joe, would you want to be on the road when you could be living at Mar-a-Lago? But I think he's going to have to. And, you know, Rick is right. He's trying to make this argument against DeSantis. But, boy, it can come back to haunt him because he, too, flip-flopped. Oh, my God. We're just getting started with all of this. Jeannie Shanzano, Rick Davis, great to have the conversation, as always. Our signature panel on the fastest hour in politics. Thanks to Matt Kranick for coming in. As well, Congresswoman Gwen Moore with us on Bloomberg. I'm Joe Matthew. I'll meet you back here tomorrow. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.